You're listening to Igniting Imagination, a podcast to spark the spirit within you from Wesleyan Impact Partners. Discover how you can join us in a spirit-led movement to bring about human flourishing grounded in love, generosity, and belonging by visiting ignitingimagination.org. Hello, and welcome back to Igniting Imagination. I'm your host, Lisa Greenwood, and joining me is my co-host for this season, Shannon Hopkins. Good to be back with you, Shannon. Hi, Lisa. It's great to be here. The theme of this season is Facing Reality, Claiming Leadership, which we've drawn from Meg Wheatley's work. And if you haven't listened to our episode with Dr. Margaret Wheatley, I hope you will do so as soon as you can because it is so good. So I want to highlight two major takeaways that have continued to stay with us and that actually we've heard from you all in the emails you're sending us. And keep doing that, by the way. We would love to hear from you. So the first, the reality that she paints in that episode, as difficult and hard as it is to hear, is actually quite helpful. And it gives clarity about what is ours to do, that we can create islands of sanity where we are and focus on our communities, our neighborhoods, where we can practice and embody the best characteristics of humanity. And the second is that she doubles down on conversation as the currency of change. And that in this age of threat, that we need more than ever spaces where people can have real and meaningful conversation that can lead to new ideas and insight and and deep connections with each other because we are not in this alone. So we hope that what you experience here in these podcast episodes is a bit of an island of sanity for you. So find a moment of pause wherever you are, take a deep breath, and may grace and peace be with you as you listen and think and feel throughout this episode. Joining us on our island today is Reverend Amy Butler, appropriate as she is from Hawaii, But it is um, such a joy to invite her into conversation. She is such an amazing um, conversation partner, friend, and leader in the spiritual landscape. So Shannon, would you share Amy's bio with us? Absolutely, Lisa. Pastor Amy believes deeply that courageous communities of people who live with tenacious love can change the world. Much of her career has been spent helping build communities of radical witness in the institutional church. She's currently serving as the designated pastor of the Community Church of Honolulu in Hawaii. Before that, Amy served for five years as the seventh senior minister and first woman at the helm of the Riverside Church in the city of New York. Amy holds degrees from Baylor University, the International Baptist Theological Seminary, and Wesley Theological Seminary. Amy's professional ministry career began as the director of a homeless shelter for women in New Orleans, Louisiana. She later became the associate pastor of membership and mission at St. Charles Avenue Baptist Church in the city of New Orleans. In 2003, Amy was called to the position of senior minister of Calvary Baptist Church in Washington, D.C., Chinatown, where she was also the first woman to lead that historic congregation. Amy's memoir is Beautiful and Terrible Things, 
faith, doubt, and discovering a way back to each other. Her website is pastoramy.com. Great. Thanks, Shannon. Um, I'd love to hear what stood out for you in this conversation. Oh, gosh, Lisa, so many things stood out, honestly. And it was just, wasn't it just lovely to be like in conversation with Amy at this moment that she's bringing both so much hope for what's being born, but also this recognition that things are changing. And so don't be afraid. And I think that I think that's the thing that stood out the most. It's like, come on, don't be afraid. This is a moment for courage, but also it doesn't take that much because look, look at this new thing that's, that's being born. Yeah. Yeah. And she's so clear that moving past fear is, doesn't mean ignoring the realities of what is. It's actually really facing the realities of, of what Mm. is and and then not letting fear win. It's so good. It's so good. Okay, so let's listen to our conversation with Amy Butler. Oh, we are thrilled, Amy, to have you with us. Uh, so good. So your remarkable book is out now. Beautiful and Terrible Things, Faith, Doubt, and Discovering a Way Back to Each Other. So listeners, if you haven't read Amy's book already, treat yourself. We have a link to the book in our show notes and to her website, and I want to jump right in. Um, In the first page, it's a beautiful quote from Frederick Buechner. Here is the world. Beautiful and terrible things will happen. Don't be afraid. So why start there? Why this theme of beautiful and terrible things that ultimately became your book title? Jump in for us. Well, I mean, who doesn't love Frederick Buechner, right? Right, right. I mean, this book is really my notes on my journey so far, Mm -hmm. and it's been full of a lot of really terrible things. My friend Russ said, I'm in chapter three and I haven't gotten to any of the beautiful things yet. (laughs) So... You know, yeah. You know, my experience of being human in the world has 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 been painful and also so beautiful. Mm. And what would have kept me from experiencing the beauty and the potential is the fear, right? It just stops us in our tracks, and that's been true for me personally, and I think true for the institutions we serve. It is. Um, it's the journey of faith, isn't it? To to face and name and move through fear. I mean, it's all through the scriptures. Yes. Do not be afraid. Mm-hmm. Be not afraid, because God knows. God yes. knows. Yes. That we're afraid. Yeah. Yes. Yes. Oh, bless you for naming it, for claiming it, for being willing. Oh, thanks. And I w- I wanted to tell you a little bit about the cover mm. of the book. Oh, please do. And and hold it up. Some may be looking at, and I know for our listeners, I hope that you'll mm. look it up, but, but do tell us. Um, well, I'll just describe it. I mean, th- this is my first book. So the whole publishing thing has been uh, <laughs> like a whole mystery to me. And, you know, when it came to the time to choose the cover of the book, uh, Random House was like, you know, your target audience is middle-aged women who are vaguely unhappy with their lives. <laughs> rude. Very rude. <laughs> and, and they like botanicals. 
And I said, okay, well, here's the thing. I'm Hawaiian. I'm from Hawaii. And like, I cannot just be having any, any dang flower on the front of my book. Right. Mm -hmm. And so I'm like, have your artists use their Google and find a Hawaiian flower. And it just was a disaster. And so finally Mm -hmm. I said, what I really want on the cover of the book is, is this, the flower. It's called an Lehua. And it is um, the first plant that grows after the destruction of a lava flow. Mm. So as you know, we have volcanoes, active volcanoes in Hawaii. And when the lava covers a piece of land, it kills everything. And then over decades of time, little green sprouts Mm. come up through the cracks. And it's always this Mm. one first. And it's this ugly, gnarly green bush and then these gorgeous, like red, mm. stunning flowers. So if you were to look out over a lava flow, you would see like little pieces of red mm. everywhere you look and beauty. And I'm like, this is my life. This is this is this is what life is like. Oh, oh, oh. So that's that's why the cover means so much to me. That's so beautiful. And also, I just think, wow, it ties right back to the conversation we had last with Margaret Wheatley, both like the beautiful and terrible things and don't be afraid, like in this time when we're living in an age of threat, but always the beauty that comes after destruction. And you're just naming it and visualizing it. And yeah, it's I love it because it's just we're just pulling this thread I don't know. I also just want to say it's just so lovely to see you here, just so full of life and joy, really embodying um, what it means to do this work in this time after all you've been through. So thank you just for showing up today. Um, Our season's theme is Facing Reality and Claiming Leadership, which is a theme of your life. It's a theme of your work. I've just seen you do this, take this space over and over. But when you think about all of the pastors, all the clergy and lay leaders that are listening today, what are the beautiful and terrible things you think the church needs to face today? (laughs) Wow. I mean, you know, know, one of the things that has been so striking to me is how many emails I have gotten from pastors and church leaders around the country saying, you don't know me. I read your book. I could never be authentic like this. If I were, my church would fire mm. me. And I'm just hanging on. I'm just hanging on till retirement, you know? And that is like deeply sad to me because we are serving an institution that is perpetually self destructing mm. because we are so afraid. We're afraid mm. to change anything. And um, I, you know, I would like to claim prophetic courage, but actually I didn't have much of a choice. <laughs> like my life just kept falling apart in public. And so, uh, you know, just go with it. Uh, but, but hmm. it also, you know, some of the things that have happened to me, my, my divorce when I was a pastor, you know, pastoring historic congregations that were in decline and full of conflict. And then of course, my very public leaving the Riverside church has all uh, led back to a choice. Mm-hmm. Do we choose fear mm-hmm. and buckling down and keeping things the way they are? 
or can just someone say the truth? Mm. Things are changing and let's go to where mm. they're going to, they're going to pop up again. And yeah. that has been such a freeing place for me to be. And I wish, and I hope for my colleagues who are serving this institution that we love that, that we don't think it's one or the other. Mm. It's, it's like within our institution and all the gifts we have, where is the newness and the beauty popping up? And could we summon the courage to go there? Well, I just, I want to, I want to draw on this. Um, you use the word authenticity. There's a, there's a kind of raw vulnerability in this. And, yeah. and, and, you know, Brene Brown has famously linked vulnerability and leadership. And, um, and so I, I would love to hear you talk about how this vulnerability has impacted your leadership and your ability to to kind of face fear, to be real and authentic. I mean, I love that you say in some ways I was forced, it was kind of public, but but in other ways you you chose. You chose to lean in and to be you and to be authentic and to claim it and to not hide it or run away and just to say, this is my life. And you continue to lead in powerful ways. And so I would love to hear you just talk about how how vulnerability and leadership is linked for you. Yeah, thanks for that. I mean, I I can remember hearing Nadia Bolds Weber talk about her book many years ago and say, mm-hmm. you know, I really want to speak from my scars and not my wounds. And so mm-hmm. that's one of the reasons this book takes six years. <laughs> so, <yeah. laughs> mm-hmm. Processing processing all of yeah. that. And it's also one of the reasons that people who read this book may be disappointed that it's not as much of a tell-all as they mm. had wished. Um my daughter, Hannah, will say, man, the chapter about me, I get off way easy. I'm like, yeah, girl, you do. <laughs> <laughs> the point of the book is not like to tell all the terrible things. Right, right. Um, the point is to be authentic in a way that is empowering. And I think early on in my ministry, I just decided it was too much damn work. To be Mm -hmm. like somebody else in the pulpit and then somebody else in real life. It's too Mm -hmm. much work. And in a way, I think as women who are breaking uh, new ground, we have a gift. Like we can't can't hide who we are and Mm -hmm. we can't hide the fact that everyone's looking at us and watching what we do. So, I mean, I'm too tired. I'm, I'm I was too tired raising kids and building a family and trying to do all the things. And for me, it was mostly like surrender. I'll just be who I am. And a big part of that is me grappling with doubt and faith and the way the institution has simultaneously ripped my faith out from Mm -hmm. under me and then like caught me Mm -hmm. with an embrace that is so profound and you'll see that when you read the book, it's like this back and forth conversation. And that really has led me to founding Invested Faith, which was founded in Shannon's living room, by the way. Uh, And, um, and these are all tied for me together because it's like, it begins with us telling the truth about the institution we serve and the institutional expression of the gospel in the world. It's changing. And what if we were to 
actually authentically be who we're becoming. So I want to follow up a little bit. I, I want to get to Investor Faith here in a minute, but this, this um, wrestling, tugging place you find yourself with the institution, and, and yet you, you stay with the institution. You're still serving a church. You, you, you have not washed your hands of it. And, and so can you just say a word about why? I mean, I, I think all of us, you know, who have a sort of holy discontent, um, deeply love the the church and the witness of the church, and and even in some respects, the institution of the church that holds the um, core purposes and values of the church, and then and then we wrestle, of course, with the the organizational structure of the church that oh um, <laughs> that can be sometimes counter to the core values and traditions at, at moments, you know. Uh, so all of that to say, you haven't given up, you haven't completely washed your hands. Will you say a word about that? Well, it could be like whatever they say, like the definition of crazy, like doing the same thing. <laughs> different results. Different results. Um, but I was asked an interesting question in one of my book events um, last week. And that was, you know, you've built this organization, Invested Faith, that relies on the failure of our institutions. Mm. And yet you're pastoring a church. So like, how do you make sense mm-hmm. of this? And I think that is the holy discontent that that you are t- are speaking of. Uh, like all of you, I love the church. I love the institution. It, it is my way to access God. And mm. and when we're good, we can be so good. Yes, yes. be so good. And there are lots of stories in my book about that. And one of them is. Um, ch- chapter five, which is the story of my divorce. It's called suitcases. And I, the divorce happened as I was leaving on sabbatical, um, after like long controversy in the church, like this one family wanted me fired and like they did things like they would come in and they would bring 14 members and sit in the second pew. And like, I would get up to preach and they would all stand up and walk out. Like it was <laughs> crazy town. It was like church at the worst. Mm. And I was so tired. And so I was going on sabbatical. And the night before uh, we left to go, my husband told me he wouldn't be there when I got back. And I, you know, my, my life just fell apart. And the irony of that chapter is that it is the institution that gave me back my faith by... Mm saying to me, you know, my deepest fear, am I going to get fired? By saying to me, you will not leave us. We will mm-hmm. be gospel community for you. Mm-hmm. We will take care of you and your children. And like some of the things that didn't get in the book, just because of space, were things like, you know, they made a committee specifically for my children to accompany them when they came to church so that people wouldn't say stupid things to them, you know, and like over and over and over again, I still get teary, like people showing up for me and it's like pulling me back into the institution because when we're good, we can be so good. Yeah. 
Like, what if we could be like that all the time? Yeah. Gosh. Yeah. Yes. What if we could be like that all the time? And I, I think that um, for me, it feels like you holding the two things at once, like pastoring a church and um, giving birth to invested faith is like believing that that bit of us loving one another well, showing up for each other well, is like that is the church in whatever form, in the form that we've known and in the form we're going to come to know. I would love to know if you if you all have had this experience too, because you know that is the exact reason why I went to Riverside Church in 2014. I I have no interest in celebrity. I don't want to be like you know somebody famous. And in fact, when they called me, everybody's like, "Who?" Like, hmm. <laughs> you know, the reason I went is because I thought our whole institution is shifting right now, and like, what if? you know, one of our flagship institutions could do it mm. as a, as a way of leading us. Yeah. And Shannon was really involved toward, toward the end of my time there and helping us imagine a new way. And we were so freaking close. We were so mm. close to turning it. And, um, and then, you know, I'm a, I'm a three, I'm an Enneagram three. <laughs> so public failure is like death to me. And then, <laughs> Ouch. Yeah. Know how much I can say on this, but I've been say, I've been saying in my book events, like if you want to know why I was fired, you have to buy the book. But um, it, it involved like awkward conversations with my parents and like um, a lot of ugly pictures of me on the front page of the New York Post. But I I you know that was a sadness for me that I remember the first time I stepped back into a church after that. It was several months after I left and um, it was like picking up lead in my feet to just mm. get over the edge of the front door. And, um, you know, I was ready to just throw it all in, throw it, just throw the towel in. Like, how can we be like this? I know that's the I know that's the experience so many of my colleagues are having, particularly as our institution is in decline because it's the fear that rises in us and causes us to treat each other like mm-hmm. like shit. Yeah. Yeah. But it's also like our own I mean, it is like losing a job, right? Like I mean, you were I mean, I think people are afraid what is gonna happen. And I want to go back to something you said earlier with, it's like, can we summon the courage? Like, can we tell the truth and then summon the courage to go somewhere new? I'm wondering, what do you think are the conditions that are needed for leaders in this moment to to do that work? And what can institutions do to support leaders? Yeah, so... Have you ever watched that documentary, 20 Feet from Stardom? It's about backup singers who sing with some some of the, the biggest um, musical acts. And there's a woman on there that sings a song called Desperation, which I love and I think should be the theme song of our institution in this moment. <laughs> like, Desperation is like the 
biggest gift that we could have in this moment because um, it'll cause some of us to walk away and those of us who walk away probably need to not be there anyway. Then it will cause those of us who stay to do the work that Shannon has been doing for many, many years to look around and say, oh, there's there's newness over here. Let's go there and, and see what happens. We got nothing to lose. So desperation is something that I think we should name and we should celebrate as a, a possibility. And then, you know, the ability to give ourselves permission to separate the goodness and presence of God from the walls institution and that's where i have found like some of the biggest gifts doing the work of invested faith because i get to interview all these people who are doing the most amazing work and i'm like damn i should have thought of that you know yeah yeah okay so this is a great time to get into invested faith i i would love to hear the story because i i actually think it's a testament to your faith in the the work of the church, right? I mean, it's it it is in in some ways a, a kind of love song of hope and and faithfulness. When you say, "Look," I mean, you're you're doing what you're describing Shannon has done for years, and that is you're saying, "Look at the newness. Look at what God is doing." Let's pay attention here. But anyway, I want to back up. And will you tell the story of how it came to be? And you said in, in Shannon's living room. And um, so origin story of invested faith. <laughs> okay. So when I went to Riverside from Calvary, uh, both historic congregations, I, I was I was I was feeling a little bored. It was like 2014 and, you know, all the conflicts had calmed down and we had been taken to the cleaners by a developer. And I was watching this happen all mm. over the city. And I was thinking, you know, we've, there's a different way. There's a different way. What is the different way? What is the different way? And then as I, as I told the story before, why I, I ended up going to Riverside. So after I was fired, I had all this time to sit around and think about what was happening in our ecosystem. And I read an article in the guardian that described how much in assets, religious institutions in the United States hold. And it's, it's more than Microsoft, Apple, and Google combined. So trillions and trillions of dollars. And if you think about it, you, you'll understand that like every women's missionary union and organ yeah. maintenance fund and everything endowment. And these churches are declining and going away and all of these assets are, are here. So I always, I always giggle and say like with my immense experience in high finance, um, <laughs> I was actually just laying on the floor in Shannon's house and her like repeatedly kicking me like, no, this is a good idea. Come on, write it up, write it up. And then also, you know, a very prominent funder in the Baptist world, who's a, a leading uh, woman philanthropist, who was just like, write the stupid proposal now. And it <laughs> nice. was written at your dining room table, Shannon. And, and what it was, was what I think God is asking of all of us. It's just like a whole bunch of suspicions that like something is happening here maybe it's worth following. And so what we do is we receive the assets of churches that are at the end of their institutional life cycles. 
and we repurpose those assets in small unrestricted grants to faith-rooted social entrepreneurs who are building businesses that are challenging unjust systems. And I'll just say, you know, when I was at Riverside, I had a really hard time building the caliber of team I wanted because a lot of people were leaving seminary and going as far as they could from the institution. Right. Hmm. Yeah. Like, I don't want to go to a three-point charge in the middle of Kansas. No offense, Kansas. (laughs) You know, to keep alive institutions that need to move in a different direction. And so what are they doing? They're starting breweries and bakeries and t-shirt companies. And, you know, in Great Britain, they're ahead of us. So I had the great opportunity of seeing that up close when I spent that time with Shannon and thinking, uh, we have to do this. Also because Jesus told us to do it. And he told all of the stories about seeds. You know? Yeah. It's not like the seeds belong to you. Like, open your hands and see where they go. So, I mean, like, yeah. I just get to meet the, the most wonderful people. I met somebody yesterday who is building a business for women who are recovering from domestic violence, teaching them how to be event coordinators. So, for example, if you're in Philadelphia and you need to hire an event coordinator to manage your wedding, you can hire this company that is training these women to ju- like, like mm. who thinks of that? Like, that's so awesome. And, and it's, be- it's, it's like the beautiful things yes. <laughs> for the church. So like, wh- I mean, I'm going to shut up in a minute, but like, I, like what would happen if instead of fixing the church roof one more time and fighting mm. over how much money we spend, we say, Oh my gosh, look at what's going on in this coffee shop over here. What if we became part of that? Mm-hmm. And we just had a legacy board of a church that closed in Virginia give us the rest of, of mm-hmm. their endowment. And so just experiencing institutions leaving legacies like that is so exciting. Because God's not going anywhere. Yeah. What brought them to that decision? How did how did that happen? Because that's that is a story of tremendous mm. faith. Really? It is. And it's been four years of me saying, church, church, hello, church, come on over here. Mm -hmm. And I will, I just want to, as an aside, I have a a friend who runs an institutional, big institutional program in the church. And he said to me, when you had this idea four years ago, I was like, kind of like, you're so Mm -hmm. cute, you know? (laughs) (laughs) I think you might be onto something. No. So there was a local um, minister who's an adjudicatory who was helping a legacy board of this church, Bethel UCC Church in Arlington, decide what to do with the rest of their money. They stopped worshiping together um, in 2022. And he's like, there's this woman who's doing this thing where they like give money to coffee shops. I don't know. <laughs> and, and they were like, okay, maybe we'll give them $5,000. And we got on a call like this. And I was like, you know, me, Tracy Terrell, she started a mobile grocery store in Southwest <laughs> Georgia. And, and they were like, we want all the money to go here. <sighs> like take this money <sighs> and like spread it everywhere and mm-hmm. see what God does. And it was mm-hmm. like a moment of beautiful celebration. And 
and an acknowledgement of all yeah. those babies being blessed and all those weddings that had happened in that sanctuary and all the community they had built. Mm. It's not over. Mm. It's still. Yeah. Yeah. I love it, Amy, because, and you named it, right? It's legacy. It's a different legacy. It's the church being reborn in different forms and different ways and different places. And it is a scattering, right? Like it's a, it's different from this like one contained space to scattering. And, um, and I wonder that you're starting to see it. I think you're, I think I'm not surprised that the person told you, oh, I thought it was a cute idea because <laughs> four years ago, the landscape <laughs> was different. Right. And, and you were ahead and now the whole landscape is rapidly changing post COVID and lots of things. But what do you think is the real message that the church needs to have to be ready to do what this church did? Is it like a, going back to our story that we have a death and resurrection, you know, that's at the heart of our faith or is it like our legacy or is it imagination? Like, what do you think are the different mechanisms that are going to help the the church? And it's not really the pastor, right? It's the people in the pew and the people on the committees making decisions. Like how do we do that work? Yeah, I am of two minds here. Um, the first is the fear part. Like we need to be saying to each other over and over, the principal story of our faith is death and resurrection. Yeah. Okay. Yeah. This is the work of God in the mm-hmm. world. So when we institutionally push back to try to stop that, yeah. we're actually opposing the work of God in the world. Mm-hmm. And mm-hmm. and that's something we need to keep reminding each other of. But the second thing I would say, and I say this as a clergy person who serves a church, we need trained theologians who can articulate this from the pulpit and lead our people in in ways that are that have theological integrity. And I, I did not learn how to do that in seminary. You know, um, 20 years ago, I was at a cooperative Baptist fellowship meeting and s- some older man cornered me in, in the in the hallway and said, if you could do anything for the future church, what would you do? This was 20 years ago. And I said, give every woman leader an MBA and teach her how to mm-hmm. articulate like the, the fundamentals of our faith. And damn, I wish he had listened to me. <laughs> because that's what we need. We need, we need leaders who can speak from a platform of theological integrity and take us to new places of entrepreneurial reinvention. Mm. You're you're speaking of um, kind of the the church that is emerging, if you will. I mean, we've inherited a model. We know that it is increasingly less appeal. The inherited model is increasingly less appealing to younger generations. And so there's this emergence of uh, new ways to be the church, even while there are still, you know, significant portions of the population that believe in and are fed by the inherited models. So how do we help the inherited models be strong, you know, really take seriously their uh, place, their witness, the the role of formation, you know, all, all of these things. And there's this kind of birthing that's happening. And so, I mean, I'm, I'm 
owning my own perspective in this around this mixed ecology. We need the inherited models. We need the new models. You know, this this sort of mixed ecology is is um, at work. But I'm curious. I mean, you get to see so much from the institutional perspective, uh, meaning the kind of inherited models, but also what's emerging. And so I'm curious how you would paint the picture of the spiritual landscape, of of the work of the church and the newness being born. How would you talk about that? So I have to tell you this funny story. My um, oldest son lives in Hawaii. And so, as you know, I'm, I'm in Hawaii and I've just um, started um, leading this church last February, and on Easter he came, he came to church. He's 29, and um, he's a sommelier. He's a, um, a level th- three wine wow. expert, and he says we do the same work. We create spaces for people to connect with each other. Okay, <laughs> but um, I said it's part of it for yeah. sure. <laughs> I said, "What was that like?" And he said, "Mom, it was like coming back to." a job I used to have a long time ago. The cubicles are in the same exact place and the people are the same. And I thought, you know, that is the institution we serve. So for those of us within the stained glass windows, how do we help our institutions become nimble in a way that allows us to respond to the work of God's spirit? So that is good and holy work. And those of us who are leading those institutions have a challenge ahead of us, but it's exciting. It's exciting. Yeah. And then in the area of the newness, let's take away the fear by saying, how many committee meetings did Jesus go to? Mm-hmm. <laughs> you know, I mean, the newness that Jesus was created happened over dinner tables and out in meadows and with the most unlikely people. And so we don't have to be scared because Jesus yeah. already did it. We're just doing what Jesus did and it's okay. And like, if we can find a way to express the newness like that, I think it will ease people into possibility. Yeah. Yeah. I think the things that are giving me the most hope and encouragement today are when the newness and the inherited, when those lines are blurred. You know, once upon a time, like we would find these cool new things and they were only in the coffee shops. Mm -hmm. And now these the coffee shops are in the lobby of churches Mm -hmm. or whatever. You know what I mean? I'm I'm just using that as an analogy, but you get the idea like that there there's newness that's being birthed in, in the healthiest, mm-hmm. most vital of inherited model churches. And, and that, that's it. I mean, right. God is doing a new thing mm-hmm. always. And do we have eyes to see, are we nimble enough to say, maybe we don't need that committee mm-hmm. at all, actually. And those folks are freed up for, this thing in the neighborhood or, you know, fill in the blank, but I, th- I see it happening all over and I'm so encouraged. And I, I think leaders who are saying yes, who are staying in, um, in their churches or, or in, in organized religion, if you will, I think I, I'm, I'm seeing them say yes mm-hmm. to that nimbleness, just to the new hope and the new life. And Yes. I'm so encouraged by that. Me too. And I, I love, and I said this at the beginning, there are four really like amazing women on in this conversation right now. And I, I, I think it's a unique perspective 
to be a woman to say, you know, when something new is born, it hurts a lot. Mm-hmm. Yeah. And it's going to be great mm-hmm. when it's yeah. Mm-hmm. yeah. A lovely mm-hmm. nod to right now, our executive producer, Blair Thompson, who gets to be in all of these conversations <laughs> and you all don't hear her voice except on the <laughs> intro in the end, but, um, but boy, she is very much a part of, mm-hmm. of the conversation and the energy in this space. So thank you, Blair. Yeah. A little shout out to you. <laughs> Can I just um, tag to something you were saying, Lisa, that I think you're right. I'm really encouraged when when the lines are blurred, when the new and the old are coming closer together, the institution and the thing that's being born. And years ago, a really good friend of mine who works for the Church of England said, she said her job is to see what God's doing on the very edge, like where all this newness is being born and see Mm. if it can affect the center. And, you know, honestly, I think that's the work we were trying to do at Riverside, right? When when you were at Riverside, it's the work. And and it's hard to turn a big ship around. But I think what is happening for churches that aren't ready to close, but they are like, we can't stay where we are. And they're saying, yes, it is to that. How can this newness, how can we create the conditions for this newness to, to take root in our space? And I wonder if you're starting to see that, Amy, in the work of Invested Faith, not just the old dying and help seed the other, but how does the new help reinvigorate the institution? And if you're starting to see some new conversations there. Oh, my gosh. Yes. I mean, among our new fellows um, is a woman in Richmond who is making use of church kitchens that sit empty, right? Mm -hmm. So creating take-home meals for very busy families who do not have time to cook dinner. And when you stop by and pick up your dinner, you are also buying a meal for another family who mm-hmm. needs a meal. Like, And that church that is housing that is delighted that the kitchen that they spent mm-hmm. so much money building is being used to build a business that, I mean, it's just so, so beauty and yes, the blurring is, is, is the best part, Mm -hmm. the best. So Amy, the last paragraph of your book feels like a blessing that we all need to hear. I wonder if you might read that for us. When you go out there into this broken and hurting world, wondering if you even want to take on the responsibility of trying to heal it, don't be overwhelmed. The hardness of this world can turn our hearts to stone, or it can make our hearts softer. We choose, and we choose by remembering that we have one another, and if we can find a way to love one another in all the complexities that invites, then we don't have to live afraid. Mm. May it be so. Mm. May we not live afraid. Uh, May we have soft hearts for what God Mm. is doing. Because it's so exciting on the other side. (laughs) Yes, so exciting. Okay, we're asking all of our guests in this season one final question. And so as you consider the reality of the world, the leadership to which you have been called, what do you want to be remembered for? You know, I thought about this question, and I don't really care if people remember me. Mm -hmm. And I don't want to live my life in hopes that people do. I hope that when I'm gone, that there will be an added measure of goodness left in the world that wasn't there before. Hmm. 
If I can manage to do that somehow, that will have been worth it all. Uh, dear Amy, that is already true. That is already true. Thank you. Igniting Imagination is a production of the Learning and Innovation Team at Wesleyan Impact Partners with excellent editing support from Truthwork Media. Follow us on social media at Wesleyan Impact Partners. Visit our website at ignitingimagination.org and share episodes with friends and colleagues. Our hope is that these conversations can spark imagination in your context. I'm Blair Thompson. On behalf of all of us at Wesleyan Impact Partners, thanks for listening.